turn to Isaiah now. We're in, we're, we're, we've come through a substantial portion of the book, uh, chapters 1 to 39. We're starting on chapter 40, and the way we've outlined it uh, is on the board, on the screen here, in chapters 1 to 35, you have prophecies of punishment and blessing. And note the order of those two words, prophecies of punishment and blessing, um, against the background of the Assyrian threat. Then there is the what we went through last, the last two sessions we've had, chapters 35 to 39, where you, 36 to 39, 36 to 39, where you have a, uh, what we've called a, a conclusion and an introduction. The conclusion, so capital A on the screen there, the conclusion is we're bringing to, to an end the whole threat from Assyria. The Assyrian army is destroyed in Israel and there's nothing left for uh, the uh, Assyrian king to do but go home. And so he does. And uh, several years later he's assassinated by his own sons. So, remarkable. So the Assyrian threat is done away with, but Isaiah has a a longer view um, for Judah, and that longer view will move another century ahead. Isaiah is in the 8th century B.C., the last portion of the 8th century B.C. He's looking ahead to the end of the 7th century B.C., whole century ahead. That's why Isaiah couldn't have written it, because after all, nobody can predict the future. Amen? Amen. Unless you're going to bring God into it. And so, uh, now I can't see, but it's all right. No, it's all right. Most of of what we'll say is on the screen. Uh, So, in chapters 38 and 39, um, Isaiah introduces the, uh, the Babylonian threat that's coming. And what's interesting is each threat is is focused on the work of Hezekiah. So in chapters 36 and 37, Hezekiah is confronted by the powerful, the incredibly powerful Assyrian army of his day. Is there any place to turn? And the answer always is yes, there is a place to turn, specifically God. But I, but but unlike his his ancestor Ahaz, who would not turn to God back in Isaiah 7. Um, now Hezekiah turns to the Lord, and in his pleas, God answers and gives deliverance to Jerusalem. Chapters 38 and 39, Hezekiah is stricken with illness. God heals him in 38. And in 39, uh, emissaries come from the king of Babylon. And we looked at this last week, I think it was. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where uh, adulation, where honor kind of takes you in directions you shouldn't go. <laughs> so he's, he's confronted with these guys and gets pretty excited, shows them everything in the, in the place. And God says, I'm going to send all of this, your sons and everything that you have, everything you've, you have accumulated, going to send it off to Babylon in captivity. And Hezekiah, I'm just, I I sense 
the the answer I, I know why I think he answers the way he does well at least there will be peace in my time you're, you're, you don't care about your kids <laughs> for the first time in my life I'm glad I'm I'm as old as I am because I don't have to put up with this place much longer <laughs> All right. I, uh, Chuck talked about going on until uh, he's 100 and I thought this morning, and I thought, hmm, I got a good chance of escaping that. <laughs> so, but, uh, uh, but then what about my grandchildren? And, and they are going to have to face the things that are coming up in our days. But I, I, I sense a little bit of what Hezekiah is facing, but God is, is showing us that Hezekiah is not the hope of Israel. Back in Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You know the passage. Um, the question has to be, well, who is this son? You and I know the answer, but Isaiah's generation didn't. Are you with me here? They don't know quite what's coming. And so who is this son? It's, it, he's going to be a king. He has uh, uh, throne names in Hebrew. They, they are translated wonder a, a wonder of a counselor mighty god everlasting father or perhaps even better father of eternity i found actually one source that read it that way and prince of peace you always have throne names when you're a king and so there is here is the king's throne name but who is he and maybe it's hezekiah Isaiah doesn't have the same kind of guidance, doesn't have the same kind of clarity about the future that you and I have, about his future that you and I have, yes? Because we can look back, we're so far on the other side of the story, oh, well, Jesus, who else could it be? And of course that's true, but in Isaiah's day it wasn't clear. And so maybe it's Hezekiah, maybe he's the deliverer. And chapters 38 and 39 show, no, Hezekiah is not the deliverer. He is not the agent of deliverance that God has been promising. So we'll, we'll, we're moving into chapter 40 now, and, and for chapters 40 to 66, we have uh, prophecies, I'm sorry, the three books of comfort, and a, and a further summary of them might be prophecies of blessing and punishment. Look at the first one, at Roman 1 at the top. Blessings, I'm sorry, prophecies of punishment and blessing. Here in 40 to 66, the emphasis is going to be on blessing first. But then secondarily, there will be uh, statements of judgment that, are, that is coming. Does this make sense to you? I've called this the three books of comfort, and I'm telegraphing what um, uh, um, my view of this whole section is. It's extremely common in Old Testament studies to look at Isaiah 40 to 66 and say there are two sections there. This is probably the, the predominant view. Um, so Isaiah 40 to 50, uh, what is it? Kent, what is it? Isaiah 40 to 56, 55? All right, and then 56 to 66. So you get two more segments of the book of, of Isaiah. In Isaiah 40 to 60, uh, 55, the, um, let, me, let me put it in the most kind way, okay? Because there are much more unkind ways to say it. 
evangelicals can see these two sections. And we have men on our faculty at the seminary who hold this view. Isaiah 40 to 55 is talking to Israel about what they're going to face in the Babylonian captivity. And then in chapters 56 to 66, it's telling them of the glory that will follow with the establishment of the kingdom of God. Are you with me here? I, I understand the argument. I don't agree with it. I, I follow a different approach of taking uh, three books of comfort. Turn to Isaiah 48 and verse, four, and verse 22. Isaiah 48, 22. I read, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Now turn to chapter, uh, let's see, nine chapters from 48 will be 57. Turn to chapter 57 and verse 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And then finally, chapter 66. See, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things. Most people don't know. Chapter 66 is the end of the book. Turn to chapter 66. And, um, wait, my fingers don't work. Uh, Isaiah 66, um, 21. And some of them also I will take for... Pre- oh, let's go to 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall, can, that shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. That's a normal ending to a prophetic book. Very almost never does a prophetic book end the way Isaiah does. It would be what I would expect that the book would end with verse 23. But it ends with verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. There is no rest, says my God, to the wicked. Uh, in one of the fine commentaries, in fact, two of the fine commentaries that I really treasure on the book of Isaiah, both of them say the, the second one of those, chapter 57, there is no rest, says my God, to the wicked, um, is, is just kind of, it doesn't fit the passage. But I think it does, and we'll talk about that as we go. The, the larger issue is I have a refrain. And when you have a refrain in a piece of, of biblical literature, you ought to pay attention to the refrain. It usually is giving you, first of all, something about structure, and secondly, about the content. What's the purpose? What's the point of the message? Does this make sense to you? So Isaiah is going to be talking in chapters 40 to 66 about the future. Uh, now, what is he going to say about them? I'm going to go past this chart. Here is the Babylonian Empire, an incredibly powerful empire, and yet ephemeral. Um, 
it came to power in 609 BC. Okay? Are, are you with me here? They defeat the Babylonians in a coalition, defeated the Assyrian Empire. It was, I think it was the Battle of Carchemish. And, uh, and Assyria simply ceased to exist as a political entity. Babylon took over, 609 BC. What, what have you heard about Babylon? How much have you heard about Babylon? A lot, a little, <coughs> a lot. That's the way I grew up. And I had Holly's Bible handbook when I was a kid and just poured over that thing. Everything I could get, I, I read. It was the only book on the Bible that we had at home. We had Bibles like crazy, but no commentaries. I didn't know commentaries existed. And so I just poured over Holly's Bible handbook and Babylon was this and Babylon that and Babylon the other thing. And I was excited about Babylon, you know, at least in learning about Babylon. Until many years later when I found out that Babylon was kind of a second-rate power for most of its history. There were two great periods of power for Babylon. One was under a name that you will probably know, some of you at least, Hammurabi. Yeah, the, the Code of Hammurabi, 18th century B.C. Uh, within two generations of his death, his power was gone, and, and uh, power moved to Assyria and stayed there off and on, greater at times, lesser at times, until 609 B.C. Okay? Are you with me here? Um, they were defeated in battle by the Persians, the Medes and Persians, coalition, in 539 B.C. How many years? 70. 70. Wonder, wonder if that's significant. <laughs> it just always has bugged me. They were only in power for 70 years. Why is 70 significant here? So long, that's the, yeah, in, in, in 605, 597, and 586 BC, there were three times when people were, exo- were, were uh, uh, taken in captivity off into the east. Uh, so 586 BC, I'm sorry, five, uh, 605 BC, um, a few are taken, probably Daniel is taken in that. Uh, 597, probably Ezekiel is taken in that captivity, but the majority of people are taken off in 586 BC. Okay, so Babylon's in power from 609 to 539 when the Persians take over, and there are three exiles, there are three returns. All right, five. um, Now I've forgotten, brother. What's the first date of the first exile, friend? Uh, first return, Kent. <laughs> five, five, thirty-six. I got it now. Five thirty-six. Huh? Five thirty-six BC. Do you know when they were when this, the temple was destroyed? Five eighty-six BC. Five thirty-six BC. They're they're sent back. First return. Second return. Under Nehemiah, that was that first one you will read about in Ezra, the opening chapters of Ezra, and also Haggai and Zechariah took took part in that first return, and so you will add elements from uh, Haggai and Zechariah to your thinking about the first return. Five eight, so five um, thirty six B C. They get back with the purpose of building the temple. 
And they laid the foundation. They built the altar. They started the, the, the sacrifices. But they stopped for 16 years. Because the Lord would not have us come back to the land and not have anything to eat. He would not have our children starve so that we may build the temple. I don't know. I'm putting words in their mouths, but I've read Haggai 1, and that's kind of what Haggai said. Are you with me here? Um, so they quit. And every year the harvests got worse until 520 B.C. when Haggai comes as a prophet to address the people and tell them, you've got to get back and build the temple. This house is in ruins because this land is in ruins. I'm sorry, vice Please, please reverse that. The land is in ruins because this house is in ruins. And if you, if you want the blessing of God, you've got to fulfill the purpose for which you came back. So they, they restarted the building process in 520, and they completed it in 516. When was the temple destroyed? 586. When was it completed? 516. How many years? 70 years. Are you with me here? Just, but it, it took a Persian to send them back. The Babylonians wouldn't. Are, are you with me here? So Isaiah is, is looking forward. He's looking past the history of the 7th century um, down to the time 609 and following when the Babylonians are in power again. Are you with me here? Yes, no? Move your heads. All right. I, I may not hear you, but I can see your heads move. And sometimes it's like this, but it's okay. <laughs> uh, so this is the Babylonian Empire that you see on the screen. Here is uh, the attack on Judah in the days of the Babylonians. Here's, this is what's going to happen later on in 586. Or it's actually earlier than that. It's about three years that they are besieging the city. It's cool they could get that by satellite. I know. It's, well, you know... Uh, um, science is the is the uh, tool that brings every truth to light. Um, so here, here are the three deportations and uh, the the three returns that we've just been talking about. Um, um, some of the people went uh, to. Um, you see the red line that goes north and then east. Those are the people that are that are exiled to. Babylonia. The, the, red, the other line, red line that goes south is the group at the end of Jeremiah. You, you, we, we don't always read Jeremiah. Jeremiah is for us not exceedingly interesting, but it's one of the best sources for what happened after the destruction of Jerusalem. And so uh, they came to Jeremiah and they said, you go, go, go consult the Lord for us and see what he wants us to do. Should we stay in the land or not? Jeremiah said, if I go, you're not going to do what I say. Oh, no, we'll, we'll do what you say. Anything you say, we'll do. So the Lord says, stay in the land. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. And, oh, you're lying. That's not the word of the Lord. So they dragged Ju uh, uh, Jeremiah off to Egypt, and, and they all died there. All right. The last of the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, Deuteronomy 28, is that they will return to Egypt <laughs> So Jeremiah, the godly priest, a prophet, dies under the curse of God. 
President. Oh, we have no no way to know. Uh, but the land, it has been in the past. It has been common to say about the exile that it was only a small percentage of people who were taken in 586. Uh, that has begun to change. Even liberal scholars are saying, no, it's probably most of the population. Um, so uh, you, you have the poorest of the land that are left there to carry on agricultural pursuits, but most of the people were taken in captivity, those who didn't die. Who knows how many died? There's, there's no information that would allow us to say. So we come into Isaiah 40 to, 40, to, to 66, and I have this threefold structure for um, the, uh, uh, the chapters, two proposed structures, uh, 40 to 55 messages to exiles in Babylon and messages to the returnees. That's the twofold structure. Uh, let me say here, in, in part, in defense of the, of, of the threefold structure that I'm, I'm going to follow, great literature almost never has only one structure. It typically has multiple structures, and we, we because we're Westerners, amen? And we've read Aristotle. Well, somebody did anyway, that, that taught us, yes, yeah. And the, the way to reason is from A to B to C, and the conclusion is D. Yes? How else could it be? I was teaching a course, a doctoral course on prophets a number of years ago, and all, there, there were, I think, five men in the class. All five of them were from, uh, were either born in Korea or China, or they were first generation born in the United States, but still have been raised in the culture. Are you with me here? And I said, how do you preach in Korea? And they said, well, we don't do like we do here at the seminary, Roman numeral one, subpoint ABC, Roman numeral two, ABC. He said, we, we state an idea, and then we walk all the way around it looking at every facet that we can. I see heads nodding in the bank. Thank you, brother, for that. <laughs> uh, which is right. Both. And the reason both are right is each culture, each language has a structure of information, and it, you have to follow the, the expected structure of information for them to understand what they were doing. Are, are, you, are you with me here? Um, so, but, but I, I point out that Isaiah probably never read Aristotle. <laughs> Since he's two to three centuries ahead of Aristotle. <laughs> and Aristotle never read Isaiah. What if Isaiah is actually structured with a structure we're not accustomed to seeing? Are you with me here? Um, so I have to be open to various ways of, of analyzing the book. This, this probably has its value. My problem with this view is that Isaiah 56, this is the returnees, yes? Yes? What's on the screen, so <laughs> you hope I'm telling the truth. Uh, um, what's the one thing Israel learned in captivity? 
that, they, that, that was different in the days of their return than it was in the days before the captivity. What's the one thing they got straightened out? Idol worship. But Isaiah 56 starts chiding the people, the returnees, for idol worship. Um, I have my own hypothesis about this, that they really didn't learn to get over idolatry. They just substituted a more subtle form of idolatry. The idolatry of the, of the law, not an idolatry of a different god, Baal, Mardu. And so uh, they really didn't get away from idolatry. But Isaiah isn't talking about an, an idolatry of the law. It's talking about worshiping gods under, under, under um, um, groves of trees and at high places, and they're making sacrifices. So something's going on here. I argue that the primary point of this whole section, 40 to 66, is not, it is, it does include a critical message for the people who are going to be in Babylon, as we shall see very shortly, and a critical message for the people who will return, but it also has a critical message for the people of Isaiah's own day. I'm go- I want to, I, I want to uh, deal with that. So I, I see a threefold structure, what I've called the three books of comfort. Um, Isaiah 40 to 48, the first book of comfort. There is no peace. And, and, and we saw these, these um, uh, refrains a few minutes ago. The second book of comfort, 49 to 57, that ends with the refrain. And then 58 to 66, the third book of comfort. Why would I call these books of comfort? others have. Look at chapter 40, verse 1. What's, how does the verse start? Comfort. Comfort my people. The messages of these three large sections are aiming to give comfort to people who are struggling with their own situation in Isaiah's day, but also As far as we've gone in Isaiah, everything Isaiah said has been, has been fulfilled. Yes? So he's, so he's also talking about a Babylonian captivity? And how do we survive? If that's coming, how do we survive? He's giving them the evidence already before they even need it to know how to survive in such times. So the first book of comfort um, sorry, let me approach it a different way. Um, I think I'll pass this by. This is uh, Oswald again. More than anything else, the exile would raise questions about the character of the God whom Isaiah and the pre-exilic prophets had been proclaiming. Had the book of, of Isaiah in its entirety not existed prior to the exile, it's easy to imagine the exilic community simply abandoning their pre-exilic faith, assimilating to the dominant Babylonian culture, as a number of Jews did. Yes? I read somewhere that during the Babylonian captivity, the Jews first established the banking industry, and they became very affluent there. They did become exceedingly affluent. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 
the um, banking industry, I don't know whether they created it, but they, they certainly embraced it. The idea is that Israel had to find a way to survive, and they, they, there are banking firms, Jewish banking firms, whose records can be traced for about 600 years <laughs> in the region of Babylon. Now, that's old information. If you ask me, how do you know that? I'll say, I read it somewhere one time. All right. <laughs> so, somewhere, I mean, even Hebrews says, somewhere, somebody said Okay? If Hebrews can say that, I can say it too. But, but uh, um, we have incredible resources uh, since Babylonians wrote on clay tablets. They, they survive uh, amazingly, and especially if a city is captured and burned, then the clay tablets are fired, and so you get you get them uh, almost indestructible and you have these thousands and thousands and thousands of clay tablets in the British Museum. I was in the British Museum in 1994 on my birthday and all I could do, two things that I did. I, I, first of all, it was one of the uh, best birthdays I had uh, because I was in the British Museum. And the second was, all I could think of was all those manuscripts that are sitting in warehouses and nobody's read them, what would we find if we <laughs> had people trained to read these things? And I was not very far out of my school work that I'm still thinking in those terms. Uh, but my point, folks, is, is simply this. Uh, I have to have the message of Isaiah before they go to Babylon. If the people of Isaiah's own day had paid attention to the message, not have had to go to Babylon. But human nature being what it is, unredeemed human nature being what it is. We heard something about that this morning. Yes? They went to Babylon. But what will, what will sustain Israel in Babylonian captivity will sustain Israel in the days of Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, incredibly wicked kings. Manasseh, Isaiah's, I'm sorry, Hezekiah's um, successor. In, in those days, it will sustain Israel too. And so the same message will be both anticipating the future and preparing people to survive in very difficult times. Can I ask a question? Uh, yeah. if, this, if this is too far off base, you can move on. When Alexander came in, yeah, uh, and then the Sadducees and the Pharisees started. weren't the the uh, Sadducees didn't they were kind of the elites, the wealthy, yeah. and they tended to be Hellenists, didn't they? Not in not in Alexander's day. That would no, be no. No, I'm saying yeah. as they moved. That that, that was subsequent. Yeah, but right. wasn't that the same thing? Because they were moving towards wealth. They were yeah. moving towards assimilation yeah. mm -hmm. of the culture. Yeah. And they've done it in the United States. Oh, yeah. Many of the yeah. Jewish people who have achieved the, wealth. The issue States, is, I always, it is, it is in my soul to buy into the dominant values of the culture. I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but all of us, mm -hmm. um, you and I have chosen a, a culture which is very much a subculture within American life. Yes? Because we're raised at different times. We're, we're raised at a different time, but we've still bought into a different subculture. 
and we embrace its values. Yes? But if we are separated from this group in some way, you, you take a young man, put him in the army. Yes? He embraces the subculture. Well, because <laughs> the, Na the Navy just gets the army there so the army can win the wars. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they send the Marines in first, and the, Amer the army has to come in to win. They just... <laughs> oh, boy. Sorry. Yeah, we're going to have a war right here. We've got a four-service war coming. Is there anybody Air Force in the group? All right, some Air Force. So, <laughs> um, so you'll forgive that, perhaps. But, but you see, buying into a subculture and its values, even at work in our humor here, in our attempt at humor here. So, so it's very easy for us when... Everybody around us is making fun of our system, of our values, of our choices, of our, our commitments. When people are ridiculing, it's easy to give them up. That's the easiest time. C.S. Lewis said this. It's very important. Uh, you can stand up. Your faith can survive anything but ridicule. So here is Israel. It's, it's not only Israel, uh, Rick. It's it's all humanity. So my point then is, what will God do about the sin that precipitated the exile? Is there any hope uh, for... Here, here, here he is under Hezekiah writing this book. Yes? But because of the revelations God has given him, <clears throat> he knows that this is kind of an island in the history of his people. Uh, Manasseh, I'm sorry, um, Ahaz before Manasseh coming. The good news is about Manasseh is the story of Chronicles, the story of Manasseh in Chronicles. It's very important. Chronicles is a post-exilic book. It's written after the exile is complete. Manasseh is taken in exile to Babylon. And there he repents and he is restored to the land and to his throne even as wicked a king as Manasseh. Even Josiah, who is a successor to Manasseh, even Josiah's righteousness cannot turn away the judgment that has to come on Judah because of the sin of Manasseh. The text says he filled the city of Jerusalem with innocent blood. It has to come. Judgment has to come. So what can God do about this? One thing that you know is they had a system of dealing with sin, and this is a major issue in New Testament studies today. The, the Jews of the first century were not legalistic. They believed in grace, and they had a system of atonement. If they did, it didn't work in Manasseh's day. Are you with me here? They did have a system of atonement, but it was altogether for, as, as Hebrews 9 says, dealing with the flesh. Are you with me here? Yes or no? Move your heads. Pardon? Explain. Okay, turn to Hebrews 9. It's around verse 10. 
Um, in the opening verses of chapter 9, the author of Hebrews uh, takes us through the organization, what, what the tabernacle was like and what happened in it. And uh, verse 6, uh, these preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without shedding blood which he offers for himself and for the the uh, unintentional unintentional <coughs> sins of the people unintentional sins yeah ignorant sins that's a good translation too what's the point there's under the law under the law there is no redemption for deliberate sin for re- rebellious sin high-handed sin is the word in Hebrew it's biyad ramah with a hand upraised are you with me here mm-hmm. um, it's kind of the fist in God's face I'm going to do this see what you can do about it there's no there's no atonement for that so verse uh, eight by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section, or the first, in Greek it's called the first tent, is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this, uh, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings Regulations for the body imposed until the time of, re- of, of reformation. It's, it's all externals. The whole thing is external. When, as, I, as I've pointed out to you at other times, when Moses sacrificed the, um, the animals, Exodus 24, for the, for the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 24 is the ritual for... Um, for inaugurating the Mosaic Covenant. And in it, in that passage, uh, he took blood from the sacrifices and he sprinkled the tent and he sprinkled the utensils and he sprinkled the book of the law itself. And he also sprinkled the, the blood on the people and said, this, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord your God is making with you today. Are you with me here? But he sprinkled it on the people. Jesus quotes that verse, Exodus 24, 8, when he institutes the Lord's Supper and he takes the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's one of, the, one of the texts. There are four and the wording is slightly different in each one based on what the author is trying to get at. It's not, it's not falsifying the message. It's just in translation, you can often say things in multiple ways. Does that make sense to you? So this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus says. Jesus is also inaugurating a covenant, namely the new. And as he inaugurates the covenant, what does he do with the blood? What does he say to the men at the table? Drink. Drink. All of you drink of it. My favorite professor said when when I was growing up, they always quoted the King James and said, drink ye all of it. Well, I made sure I got every last drop. <laughs> I didn't want to let, <laughs> I didn't want to disagree, dis, disobey what the Lord had commanded. But it's y- y'all, I'm all y'all. Okay, 
Y'all is plural? Yes. Yes. And if I want to talk about all of you, then it's all y'all. So all y'all drink of it. Are you, are you with me here? So if you drink it, where does the blood go? Inside. Inside. The blood in the Mosaic Covenant cleanses the flesh. The blood in the, in the New Covenant cleanses the conscience. That's where Hebrews is going to go with it in chapter 9, verses 12 and 13 specifically. Uh, my, my point then is that the, um, uh, the lost simply cannot deal. And any spiritually sensitive Israelite must realize, look at, cha- if, are you still in Hebrews? Yes. Right, look at chapter 10 for a moment. I've got to turn back there. Um, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, um, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it's talking about the Day of Atonement, uh, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. How often? Every year. And he's talking about the Day of Atonement. But think about all the daily burnt offerings, yes? And all the sacrifices you would bring if you were an observant Israelite, yes? Um, For, he says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Are you with me? So, surely a sensitive, spiritually sensitive Israelite in the days of Isaiah, would look at the temple, be very thankful for it, yes? Thankful for the priesthood, thankful for the option of bringing sacrifices, but thoroughly aware of the reality that Hebrews mentions, that I come away and my conscience is still defiled. How do I deal with this? How How can I serve God when I have committed the sins I have committed? Do you not ever feel that way? So what Chuck was preaching about this morning. The answer is the blood of Christ solves this problem. But Isaiah doesn't have that. All he has is the temple. Are you with me? As far as revelation is concerned, all he knows at this point, I don't know how this was revealed. I wish we knew how Isaiah got it, what was the order of the, or- of the oracles. Is he writing them in the way that they are, deli- that they are given to him, or just exactly what's going on? I, 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 there are lots of questions. When I get home to heaven, I'm going to go find Isaiah, and I say, how did you write that book? He goes, write? I didn't write. Somebody else wrote the book. I just gave the oracles. I'm, okay, what order did they come in? Well, I'm just, yeah. I want these answers, and nobody's answering these for me. Uh, but Isaiah doesn't have Isaiah 53 yet. And when he gets it, what's it mean? So the sacrifices of the Old Testament is to show that, number one, is costly. Mm-hmm. And number two, that blood has to be shed yes. for Yeah, And a death has to occur. It's always sin requires death. Um, 
Pardon? Okay. So, so we're, we're stepping into this passage, Isaiah 40 to 66, with the question here on the, on the screen, what will God do about the sin that precipitated the exile? Again, you and I know they don't. Are you with me? Something's got to be done. And so Isaiah is, for any spiritually sensitive Israelite in his own day, he's writing this. This is the future, but there is hope beyond the future. And if you're a spiritually sensitive Israelite, here is a message that will help you get through your own life in the days of Manasseh. Are you with me? In the days of, of the last kings of Judah, uh, Jehoahaz, who only reigned three months, and then Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. Um, just abysmal reigns. How do I survive in such times? So the next 125 years are going to be critical. And the book of Isaiah is there as a, mission, as a ministry to help these folks get through that time. Let me go back to the preceding um, uh, screen. More than anything else, the exile would raise questions about the character of the God whom Isaiah and the pre-exilic prophets had been proclaiming. Had the book of Isaiah in its entirety not existed prior to the exile, it's easy to imagine the exilic community simply abandoning their pre-exilic faith. Why, why is Oswald making this point? Because most scholars hold that Isaiah could not possibly have predicted what was going to come. Look, in Isaiah, what is it, 44 and 45, he names Cyrus king of Persia. How can you do that as, as, as two, nearly two centuries before Cyrus comes on the scene? Well, you can't. But I've told you that little story they told us at seminary before, and, and you will remember it and begin to groan already when I started. Kid, with the, the man was taking his son home from Sunday school, and so he said to his son, what did you talk about in Sunday school this morning? Oh, we talked about Noah's flood. Son, you don't sound too impressed. No, I can't believe there was a year-long worldwide flood that wiped out the whole human race. His dad said, well, son, don't you think if God wanted to, he could do that? The kid said, well, if you're going to bring God into it, I can believe anything. <laughs> so, uh, but that's the point. Uh, most Old Testament scholars omit God from the whole process of writing the Bible. This is all naturalistic. But the very argument, as we shall see, of Isaiah 40 to 48 is... I predicted this long ago so that you could not say my gods did this. That, that's a very nearly a direct quote. And he, he, we'll see how that works out in weeks to come. Um, so the threefold structure, the first book of comfort, second and third is the way I'm going to approach this. So we'll take... 40 to 48, and then take a break, and then 50, uh, 49 to 57, uh, take a break, and then um, uh, 58 to 66, and we'll be done. Um, the way I analyze this, um, Isaiah 41 to 11 is an introduction to the whole. Uh, so look at, in just let's just read it, 
and I'll, I'll make some very brief comments, and the next week we'll go look at the whole of, or not next week, but very soon after that, we'll go look at the whole of the, of the 40th chapter. Introduction to the whole. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. My text reads, speak tenderly. Hebrew has some really um, dear kind of idioms. In Hebrew, this is, speak upon the heart of Jerusalem. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is, is ended. Uh, warfare may be the wrong term here. Tzavah in Hebrew can mean uh, warfare, but it can also mean hard service. Her hard service is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, in verses 3 to 11, you will find three divisions in your text, probably. And in each one, a voice calls out, or in some way, there's a voice calling. So, verse 3, a voice cries. Notice it's not the voice crying in the wilderness. The, the Hebrew punctuation requires this reading, so all the New Testament translations are off on this one. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the, uh, in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. You of all people in history will understand this. Every time you have driven interstate on an interstate highway, what do you find? Yeah. We're talking about a highway for the coming of God. Every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall be made level, and in the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Second, verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry. Notice voice and cry. Yes? A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of God stand, will, will, will stand forever. Finally, fourth passage or third of the voice calling. Verse 9, get you up into a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Finally, the Lord is coming. Um, Behold, the Lord comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his uh, recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that were, are with young. Now, why have I mentioned this? Um, in this passage, I think what we have is a... Is, a summary of the whole of chapters 40 to 66, and with this we'll close. So in, in verses um, um, 1 and 2, you have an introduction. Then the first voice that calls out 
is a declaration of comfort for Zion. But that's summarizing, in my opinion, Isaiah 40 to to, uh, uh, 48. Okay? It's a book of comfort for Zion. This this second one, verses 3 to 5, I'm sorry, um, um, verses 3 to 5 introduce the first book of comfort. 6 to 8 introduce the second book of comfort, where the emphasis is upon the, mo- the mode of salvation. How, how are we going to deal with this problem of our sin? How is it ever going to be dealt with? How can we expect comfort from God when we are such wicked people? How can we expect comfort from God when he requires death of the sinner? How can we expect comfort from God at all? And so he begins to talk about how to prepare the way of the Lord. All right, in, in chapters then... Uh, 49 to 56. And finally, in 49 to 11, we introduce the third book, which is talking then about the actual coming of the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 65, for example, you have the new heavens and new earth. The the Lord begins to come. And what is the effect of his coming? Well, it's it's all the promises there in, in, in 57 to 66. So this is the way we're going to approach all this as we go. Um, We'll talk more about these things uh, when we're back together again, but uh, this is the introduction. Chapters 40 to 66 assume that God does predict the future. So if he didn't predict the future, the book has no message. But since he did predict the future, we're looking at what God is telling God is telling through Isaiah, the people of Jerusalem in Isaiah's day. This is how you're going to get through this. You, 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 he always had a righteous remnant. How can we survive? So this will be the message that will get them through. And then in the Babylonian captivity, it will be the message that will help them sustain faith as they go through the 70 years in Babylonian captivity. Let's close with prayer. Father, you're a far greater God than most of us even are aware. Uh, That's kind of a childish statement coming from me to you. You only know your own greatness. We are only beginning to sense it. We've dabbled around on the edges of your greatness, but we've never really gone into any depth. Isaiah, you gave revelations that still minister to us. We're thankful for that. He lived 27 centuries ago, 28, and he still ministers to us. How great are you, Father? Teach us that in the midst of hard times, all, always our hope is in you. It's never in, it's never in circumstances. Our hope is never in the government. Our hope is never in the economy. Our hope is never in our jobs. Our hope is only solely nowhere else but in you because there is no hope anyplace else. So Father, um, use these chapters of Isaiah to begin to speak to us and uh, prepare us for hard times that are ahead but also give us joy because we know the end. We know the outcome. Our Father wins.
For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen.